who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Starter, season three of the Galactic Football League series, written and performed by Scott Sigler. The Starter is also available as an ebook and as an ad-free, unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the starter. Quentin managed not to throw up during the punch-in, an amazing feat considering that the smell of candied shushalik still filled the salon. Three hours until punch-out in a normal space. Time enough to plan. Choto. Quentin said. Matterch is your stomping ground, so what do we do? The city has 50 million people, Chodo said. Unless John knows where his brother might be, we don't have a chance. John rubbed his hands. His face tat spelled out gibberish. Ah, a couple of seasons ago, I visited Matterch and we went out drinking with Ju and his teammate Shiki Kill. We went for Chinese food. A couple of rowdies tried to rob the restaurant. Ju and I beat the crap out of him, rousted him right out. No cops, no reports, no nothing. The owner said if we ever needed a favor, we could ask him for anything. If Jew is still on planet, that's where he'll hide. Chinese food, Chodo said. You remember the name of the place? John nodded. Chucky Chong's League-style House of Chow. I know that restaurant, Chodo said. Excellent Mugu Gai Pan. But there is a problem. Chucky Chong's is two miles from the shaft opening. Two miles? Quentin said. That's nothing. We could grab a cab. Hey, we could even jog it in like 20 minutes. No, Chodo said. Your face is too famous, Quentin. And you as well, John. People may recognize you. If word gets out, the police or Anna's people will follow you right to Jew. I am a native son of Manage, and as such, I am also too well known. There will be a sentient hunt for Jew, so police will be all over the streets. Can we split up? John shook his head. No, we can't. Unless my brother sees me, he won't go with anyone. Quentin didn't have to know Jew to see the logic in that. Were he in Jew's shoes, there were only a few people he would trust. All right, then we all go together. Chodo, can you make some calls when we come out of punch space? There's got to be some way we can travel those two miles without being seen. They waited as Chodo considered this. I don't know anyone directly, he said finally. I won't have my family move us around. It's too risky. Sorry, John. John nodded. I understand. I haven't lived in Matterch for years, 
but my family has connections in the sanitation department. I will try to set something up. But whatever we do, success, if not our lives, will depend on Greedock arriving soon after us to sign you. He will come? Quentin nodded. Yes, Greedock is coming. Trust me. His teammate seemed somewhat relieved by this. They all trusted him. All but Rebecca Montaigne. She stared at Quentin, anger and doubt in her eyes. He just hoped that his plan would work and he could prove her wrong. Sitting alone in his stateroom, Quentin felt the reality wave break over the Hypatia, felt himself spreading, separating. Then almost as soon as it started, it was over. He managed to keep down the snack he'd had during the short flight. Maybe he was finally getting used to space travel. That, or the fear of what he was doing, far outweighed his fear of punch space. Having one crime lord unhappy with him was bad enough. He was about to make it two. And that was the best-case scenario. The worst? He wouldn't even make it off Orbital Station 1 alive. He slowly breathed away the stress of the flight, then walked out of his stateroom and into the salon. His passengers waited for him. Rebecca Montaigne, Mumo Kilwi, Shoto Thicket, John Tweedy, and Shoto the Bright. Shoto worked a palm-up display, petty palp fingers touching and moving glowing icons. A message scrolled through the air, but Quentin didn't know how to read Quith. Shoto! What's the word? We have transport, Chodo said. This is very short notice, Quentin, but my brother knows an OS-1 native who can get us to Chucky Chong's. A quith warrior? A worker? Human, Chodo said. The Concordia accepts all citizens. Quentin nodded. He found it hard to remember that other governments weren't like the purest nation, and that in most systems all species were welcome. Orbital Station 1 had native human residents that could trace their roots back some two centuries, to ancestors who had emigrated from the Planetary Union, the League of Planets, or even the Purest Nation. Chodo closed his left pedipalp hand. The holo palm blinked out. He turned to look out a viewport window to Orbital Station 1, the place of his birth. Once this yacht moors to the shaft wall, we must all fit into the lifeboat. My contact will pick us up there. What we will do is dangerous, but to rescue John's brother, there is no other way I can think of. Quentin. I ask you again, are you sure that Greedock will come after us? Absolutely, Quentin said, although he still had no idea. He's got our back, Shoto. You know it. Quentin looked out the viewport at the massive construct. Orbital Station 1, or the ACE, as it was frequently called. The planetoid was completely artificial, built over centuries by the Quith as an outlet for the excess population of their homeworld. Quentin had been here once before during the Tier 2 season. The pointy sphere reminded him of a massive medieval mace, a rock studded with blue, metallic points. The points were actually crystalline spires probably two miles high, a mile thick at their base. They reflected a dull metallic blue color, their surfaces worn and pitted from space dust and debris. They were projections of the silica-based lifeforms that made up the planet's ever-expanding framework. Centuries of terraforming had brought in countless asteroids, gradually building up mass. That same crystalline material made up most of the buildings, city streets, even the sprawling football stadium known as the Black Hole by the locals and the Ace Hole by human detractors throughout the rest of the Concordia. Frederico flew the Hypatia straight toward a unique spire. 
Unlike the thousands of points that angled to a weathered tip, this one extended about a mile up from the uneven surface before ending in a two-mile-wide circular opening. This entrance led through the crust of OS-1 and into Matterch, the ACE's main city center. Frederico's voice came over the yacht speaker film. So far, so good. I'm sure Volani will have cops check registrations for incoming ships to see if any GFL players or staff are coming in, but I think they'll focus on flight plans filed after Jew got cut. We might escape notice long enough to get you all off the yacht. Might? Becca said. Well, that's comforting. The players rode in silence as the Hypatia slid through the void toward the opening's edge. Quentin watched the changing view, mesmerized by the scale of what he saw. Starships, some twenty times the size of the Hypatia, noiselessly moved in and out of the two-mile-wide shaft. The Hypatia slid over the shaft, bottom parallel to OS-1 surface, then descended belly first. Long rows of lights ran down the inside of the shaft, each light far larger than the yacht itself, a line of illumination reaching down and down to the buried civilization far below. The last time he'd been here, the long string of lights reminded Quentin of the mines on Makovi, the mines he'd worked before a gangster discovered that he had a million-credit arm. The Hypatia descended the shaft, the big ship suddenly small in the presence of the miles-long traverse. Bluish projections jutted forth from the walls, the same bluish material that made up the spires and most of OS-1's framework. Thousands of small, interstellar-capable ships were moored to these projections, running the gamut of sizes from small trucks, cargo tugs, and yachts up to massive haulers far larger than the touchback, and something that made Quentin nervous. Warships. The Purist Nation had no warships, at least none that he'd ever seen. Kretorakians restricted the navies of all conquered systems. The Quith Concordia, however, was not a conquered system, and as an independent, had one of the galaxy's largest fleets. The moored ships did not move, but the spires themselves showed countless spots of activity. Yellow, bug-like machines crawled the walls, along the piers, around the dock ships. The machines trimmed and repaired the always-growing blue silicate, keeping the semi-organic surface tidy, clean, and ready for commerce. It was hard to focus on just one of the machines. They moved about in such numbers, it was like trying to see an individual ant amidst a swarming anthill. The Hypatia slowed, then shuddered as it moored to some long, unseen blue spike. They had arrived. You better move fast, Frederico called out on the sound system. I just got a notice from customs officials. We're tapped for a random inspection. Okay, team, Quentin said. To the lifeboat. Let's go. As a football player, Quentin Barnes had gotten up close and personal with all the races. Human, Heavy G, Key, Quith Warrior, and Sklorno. The hitting, blocking, and tackling usually involved physical contact with just one or two other beings. Fumble recovery pileups, however, created a mass of twisted bodies all jammed together so tightly that the players on the bottom couldn't move until the whistle blew and the pile slowly broke apart. A pileup like that seemed roomy compared to the lifeboat, and the packed mass of sentience crammed inside. Quentin had somehow wound up against the inner hull. He felt metal grate pushing into his right cheek, the bony carapace of Chodo's elbow pressing into his left. Rebecca Montaigne's muscular body was pressed into his back. Someone was damn near cutting off the circulation in his legs, and, worst of all, a key arm or leg was mashed right up against his lips. It wasn't racist to say that the key stank, because they did, and bad. 
Now Quentin had first-hand knowledge that they tasted even worse. Lifeboats were made for four normal-sized sentients or three GFL-sized ones. In this lifeboat, they had managed to pack in two humans, a heavy G woman, a quith warrior, and two key. Hey, Rebecca, John said. Get your front off my knee, will ya? I can't move, Rebecca said. And I don't think that's me on your leg. Well, someone's foot is on my knee. Hey, whose foot is on my knee? Quentin managed to bend his leg a little, then give a short stomp. Hey, John said. Uh, it's my foot, Quentin said. Mystery solved, Uncle Johnny. Now shut up and deal with it like the rest of us. The only advantage to Quentin's mashed-up posture was that his right eye was almost on top of an exterior monitor. His left hand was smashed against his chest, but he could wiggle his fingers enough to work the monitor's controls. Speaker film inside the lifeboat emitted Frederico's voice, somewhat muffled by the 2,000 pounds of tightly packed footballers. This is your captain speaking, Frederico said. I believe your local guide is en route. Quentin looked at the monitor and saw what Frederico was talking about. A spiderish machine the size of an air tank scuttled along the underside of the blue spire, moving with a jerky precision. Hooked feet dug into the slick, jewel-like surface, letting the machine practically sprint down the length. The gravity here was just a hair under standard, which meant that if the maintenance machine fell, unless it had anti-grav and it didn't look big enough for that, it would plummet two miles straight down the shaft to the city of Matterge below. Uh, Jodo, Quentin said as the machine rushed closer, filling up the tiny screen. I don't know about this. It is the only way, Chodo said. And John, your feet smell like the rear end of a giant Gretton fish. Hey, you leave my feet out of this. If only I could. Chodo, seriously, Quentin said. The yellow crawler moved faster and faster, closing in. The pier shook a little with each spidery step. This is a bad idea. Just hold on, Chodo said. The ride is about to get bumpy. Quentin, please release the locks. Quentin moved his left hand and hit a button, releasing the locks holding the lifeboat firmly in place. He then switched the view, letting him see it from a camera farther up the Hypatia's side. As soon as he did, he wished he hadn't. The yellow spider machine reached one long arm into the lifeboat hold. The lifeboat rattled, then lurched. Quentin started to say something, and just as he did, the whole lifeboat turned and the key arm or leg that had been just on his lips now slid into his mouth and pressed down on his tongue. Oh, hi one, why would you ever create anything that tastes as bad as this? Quentin bit down hard. He heard Mumo Killowee roar, then felt the limb yank out of his mouth. He clamped his jaws shut, hoping he would never experience something like that again as long as he lived. There was no room for them to be thrown about by the spider machine's rough handling, but their weight shifted and turned and pressed them against each other. On the screen, Quentin saw the machine arm pull the lifeboat out of the Hypatia, then bend the arm and press the lifeboat against its back. The spider thing turned in place and scurried down the protrusion. As he lurched helplessly from side to side, Quentin switched camera angles again. The next view must have come from the top of the lifeboat, because he wasn't staring at the protrusion or at the spider machine. He was looking straight down the seemingly bottomless, hollow spire. His stomach roiled. The view, combined with the pure evil taste of the key limb, made him fight to stop from puking up that snack he'd so expertly held down after the punch-out. The spider machine moved fast toward the shaft wall, angled for a crack in the rocky blue material, and crawled right inside. 
A sudden lurch and grinding sound told Quentin the lifeboat had smashed into something, probably the side wall. His brand new lifeboat from his brand new yacht, now undoubtedly all scratched and dented. And oh, great, the static on the small screen told him the camera had probably been torn away. He could see nothing more, and really had no idea where the driver was taking them, if there even was a driver at all. The Kraken players jostled heavily against each other for another few minutes, thrown this way and that, but mostly down as the machine seemed to head for the city below. Then, a final lurch, a gong, and the lifeboat moved no more. Quentin, Chodo said. Open it up, please. Please, Rebecca said. John's feet. Oh my God, please get the door open. Hey, John said. Quentin was now inverted at a 45-degree angle, head lower than his feet. He had to squirm a little, but he reached out and found the button to open the lifeboat. The six teammates half fell, half crawled out. Quentin had a cramp in his right leg, and he wanted very badly to brush his teeth, get that rancid dead sparrow taste of key out of his mouth. Quentin stood and stretched as he looked around. They were in a small cavern, lit by glowing balls of various sizes that jutted partially out from the blue translucent ceiling. The light illuminated cracks and veins of varying density. A second spider machine crouched nearby, the back end of its left side taken off, part spread all over the translucent blue ground. Racks of tools and other equipment ringed the parts. As Quentin suspected, his new lifeboat was beat to crap. Scratched, dented, long gouges in the orange paint. He'd had it, what, four weeks? Well, nothing he could do about it now. The spider machine that had carried the lifeboat gave off metallic groans as the legs folded in on themselves and lowered the body. The dented yellow head split. The bottom half descended to the ground. A man in a yellow jumpsuit and scuffed leather boots stepped out. Quentin could not read Quith, but he assumed the large patch on the man's shoulder said something like, Matter Sanitation and Maintenance. Howdy, y'all, the driver said. Sheer out the heavy-handed told me you needed a local. The name is Jake, Jake Bible. John stepped up quickly and shook the man's hand. John Tweedy. I know who you are, Jake said. I watched you Kraken guys beat the death last year. Uh, the Kraken suck, by the way. The fact that John didn't instantly hit Jake right in the mouth was testimony to his stress level, his focus on rescuing Jew. So how do we get my brother? John asked. We gotta move fast, man. Well, that depends, Jake said. I can't get you to him until I know where he is. John paused, then looked at Chodo. Can we trust this guy? I do not know, Chodo said. I have never met this human, but I am afraid we do not have a choice. Wherever your brother is, he can't hide for much longer. No kidding, Jake said. Jew has like the most famous face in all of the ace. Vellani wants him bad, too. She offered a reward of a hundred grand for any info that leads to his arrest, his capture, or... Jake's voice trailed off when he saw John staring with those crazy eyes. Say it, John said. Or what? Jake took a small step back before answering. Or his death. If you guys don't get the mad Jew off this station fast, the only way he's leaving is in a coffin. Okay, okay, I guess I have to trust you, Jake Bible. You get 50 grand if I reach my brother. You screw us, I'll kill you myself. But if you rat us out, I'll turn you over to him. John pointed at Mumo Killowy, who let out a long, answering growl. Jake took a good look at the 12-foot-long key, then nodded. Right, he said. I get it. 
You guys make your point loud and clear. No need for any violent examples, you know what I mean? So where do we go? Have you heard of Chuck E. Chong's league-style house of chow? You mean the Mugu guy pan place? John nodded. Yeah, I know it. I'll have us there in 20 minutes. It's close, but we'll have to take the wall crack pass. Cops are searching every vehicle in the city, so everyone will be riding in the storage section of that. Jake pointed to his spider machine. Quentin sighed. Somehow, he'd known that was coming. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. After 30 minutes of being slammed around a storage space only slightly larger than the lifeboat, the maintenance machine's back hatch opened. Quentin crawled out into a dirty back alley, stepping over a wrongly folded Mumokiloe in the process. And he thought he'd felt beat up after a game? The ride was like playing three games right in a row. Quentin had to assume the customs inspection hadn't been a coincidence, assume that Anna Villani knew he was here. A very real threat, yet he had been tucked away inside a maintenance machine one that looked just like tens of thousands of other maintenance machines spread throughout the city. If he and his teammates hadn't been spotted coming out of the Hypatia, then no one would know exactly where they were. As GFL players, they couldn't be arrested or detained. But if Anna owned the cops, they probably weren't worried about filing reports and following regulations. Jake Bible stepped out of the spider machine and quickly walked back to Quentin and the others his head swiveling from side to side as he looked around the alley for anything suspicious. He carried two large duffel bags filled with something bulky, but obviously light. This the place? Quentin said. No, but it's close, Jake said. I had to park in an alley. Maintenance crawler too near Main Street would draw attention. So you got a graph car for us or something? Nope. From here on out, you walk. But we might get recognized, Quentin said. You recognize John right off. Oh, I brought you disguises, Jake said, and tossed the bags to the ground at Quentin's feet. Quentin knelt and opened the first bag. He reached in and pulled out a black jacket that had a blue-trimmed metal flake-red circle on the left breast. No way, John said. You want us to dress up like orbiting death fans? It's perfect, Jake said. Probably 15,000 sentients here in the city wearing death gear tonight. It's just what people wear. Death football, you know, here it's like a religion. And a lot of plus-size sentients are fans. You know, the GFL wannabe types. Quentin started passing out the gear. Jackets, shirts, jerseys, and most importantly, hats. He and his teammates put on the items. Jake smiled. Yeah, now you guys look real good. I can get you more gear when the death wins a tier two tourney and moves up to whip your fat cracking butts next season. John walked up and put his huge hand on Jake's neck, squeezed and lifted. I let that earlier comment slide, John said, and I'll let this one slide too, because I need to get my brother, but I'm starting to get offended. I will beat you to death with your own foot, scrolled across John's face. He set Jake down gently. The smaller man rubbed his neck. <laughs> right, got it. Go Krakens, okay? Now, where's my money? I get my brother and you get your money, 
John said. He walked to the end of the alley. Quentin followed and looked out into the streets, up at the buildings. Matterch sat nestled inside a sprawling blue dome. Massive blue-tinted crystals reached out from inside the dome, curving around themselves and intertwining with each other like some unfathomable concave beard. The city's buildings were mostly made from the same blue material, an organic substance that seemed bubbly, almost as if it was made by pouring water down a wall and letting it freeze, layer by layer, into a thick sheet of ice. Trimming maintenance vehicles, both flying and crawling, were always in motion, cutting away at spiraling growths that stuck out from buildings, streets, and even from the long connections that linked the buildings together. Some of the buildings towered so high the eye and mind had trouble reconciling it, trouble making sense of top floors that were almost a half mile above ground level. The living crystal didn't limit itself to well-defined buildings. Spires, spurs, and branches reached from building to building, curving over alleys, streets, even stretching out so far they arched over entire blocks. There were so many connections that by three or four blocks away, the buildings all looked like parts of an enormous sponge. On one of the buildings, Quentin saw a 50-foot-high animated image of Jew Tweedy jumping up and over clashing linemen to land in the end zone. Jew's face had to be 10 feet high, if not bigger. Every being in the city of Matterch knew exactly what he looked like. And at 6 foot 8, 365 pounds, even if you could disguise that famous face, you'd have a hard time disguising the big body. Hey, John said, that's the place. Quentin looked to where John was pointing. The base of a towering building held many street-level businesses, but Quentin knew their destination when he saw it. Squiggly red symbols covered a white storefront, as did holos of quith warriors repeatedly dipping petty palps into square, white containers and pulling out bunches of long noodles. The sign above the restaurant read, Chucky Chong's League-Style House of Chow. Hundreds of sentients walked up and down the street, staying on the sidewalks to avoid grab cars traveling more than a little too fast. Other sentients, mostly quith workers but also humans, some Sklorno, flapping Kretorakian civilians and a few key, weren't really moving at all. They leaned against walls, sat on the sidewalks, hung from street lamps and signs, all with postures that either radiated defeat or ached with predation. Quentin recognized their kind for many years of surviving on the streets of Makovi. Petty thugs, street toughs, drug addicts, drunks, hookers, and the refuse common to any big city anywhere in the galaxy. High-class place, John, Quentin said. You and your brother really know how to pick them. Yeah, well, the egg rolls are unreal, John said distantly, his wide-eyed gaze flicking from sentient to sentient. They put shredded Tanati mites in there. Quentin shuddered at the thought, imagined that he might have been wrong. There might be something that tasted even worse than key leg. All right, this burger ain't going to cook itself. John, get the rest of the team. We're going in. Quentin crossed the street, careful to avoid the cars. By the time he walked into Chucky e. Chong's, his teammates were right behind him. The decor was a crazy mix of themes. Tower nautical and old earth china. A dozen sentients sat in cushioned red booths, mostly human, but there were a few quith workers as well. One heavy G man, his table covered with heaping plates. Everyone in the restaurant looked working class. Construction, maintenance, manufacturing, that kind of thing. Behind the counter floated a white-skinned hurrah wearing a red backpack. Gold characters, which Quentin could only assume were Chinese, emblazoned the backpack's red enamel. The hurrah saw Quentin and the others, 
then flew out from behind the counter to stop in front of Quentin and John. All row, it said to John. It has been a wrong time. John nodded, smiled just a little. Chucky. Quentin looked from the hurrah to John. This is Chucky Chong? What? The hurrah said. You no think I wrote Chinese? I, uh, wouldn't know what uh, Chinese look like, Mr. Chong. A rook like me, Chucky said, then turned to face John. Now I go get your friend. You get him out of here. You get him safe? John nodded. Chucky Chong's white wing flaps fluttered. He gracefully shot over the counter and through a door that probably led into the kitchen. Seconds later, he came out, trailed by a massive human wearing sunglasses, a thick black hat, and a long tan coat. <laughs> Great disguise, Quentin said. We'll get at least 20 feet before anyone recognizes him. John didn't hear the comment or ignored it. He walked quickly to his brother, reached his hands up, and held both of Jew's shoulders. Jew smiled with relief. Big brother. Hey, John said. Ready? Jew nodded. Rebecca walked up fast and poked Jew in his chest. Did you do it, Jew? Did you kill that girl? Jew stared down at her. Who is this? I'm the woman that just risked her life to save your ass, she said. And you're going to look me in the eye and answer my question. Becca, John said. Of course he didn't. Becca turned on John, her eyes full of fury and even more intensity than she showed on the field. John, shut up. A woman was murdered. We're not going anywhere until I believe Jew didn't do it. The restaurant fell silent. Jew looked down at her for a few seconds more, then slowly shook his head. I didn't do it, he said. I couldn't have done it. I loved her. They set me up. Rebecca stared up at him, stared up hard. Jew did not look away. He had a sadness to his eyes, a fatigue. It seemed like a strange expression, a sense of loss combined with resignation, as if what was done was done and he already knew he had to move on. Becca, Quentin said, we have to go. You're not going anywhere, a voice called from the front door. At least not with our running back. Quentin turned to see six sentients, a normal-sized key in front, only about 250 pounds compared to Mumo Killowee's 650, a Kretorakian civilian that sat on the key's shoulder, two GFL-sized heavy G, an oversized Sklerno nearly as big as the Awa sisters, and a key so big it was still trying to fit its body through the front door. Chucky Chong shot through the air to hover in front of the new arrivals. You know welcome here. We crows. You go. The six ignored the hurrah restaurateur. All of them wore nondescript clothes, save for the Kretorakians. His garish outfit was light yellow with blue polka dots. The colors of the Coronada Delana cloud killers. Crap, Quentin said. Quentin recognized some of the cloud killer players, like the hard-hitting Sklorno cornerback Smileyberg and the heavy G tight end Jesper Schultz. John Tweedy stepped up to stand next to Quentin. Damn, John said. I forgot that the killers picked up Shiki Kill in the offseason. Quentin pointed at the small key. Is that Shiki Kill? John nodded. The kicker-sized key grunted. Things had just become much, much more complicated. Coronada Delana was a city on the planet Sata of the Hara Tribal Accord. Sata, which was even closer to Orbital Station 1 than Ionath was. Want to know something, John? Quentin said absently. Considering that Shiki is the only one besides you that could have possibly known you might hide here, and considering he plays for a Tier 1 team that is as bad off as we are, 
And considering that the team has a bye week just like we do, John, it might have shucking helped if you'd remembered that. Sorry. Quentin shrugged. He hadn't come all this way to lose the Galaxy's best running back to anyone, especially to a team that the Krakens played in just three weeks. It doesn't matter anymore. We got bigger fish to fry. The small key barked a short, choppy sentence, his voice just as big and strong as that of Shoto Thicket or Mumo. Barnes, the Kretorakian said. Shiki Kill says that if that is a joke about his size, it is not funny. I don't care what he thinks. Jude Tweedy is coming with us. Wrong, the Kretorakian said. My name is Maloya. I am the official representative of the warlord Yashahone, owner of the Cloud Killers and leader of the Yashahone tribe of Planet Sata. I am here to offer Jew Tweedy a contract. How much? Jew said. John turned on him. Jew, you can't sign with them. Why not? I gotta get immunity or I'm screwed. But we came to get you. Maloya flew overhead, just out of reach. The leathery, flapping noise reminded Quentin of his days back on McCovey, when the bats would police an area or a situation and people would die if they happened to move too fast. But he wasn't in Kretorakian-controlled territory anymore, and this disgusting creature flying above his head was just another scumbag gangster. We offer league maximum, Maloya said. Three seasons, guaranteed. John's face turned white. Nice, Jew said. But what about Anna Volani? Can you protect me from her? Maloya let out a horrid screeching sound that must have been Kretorakian laughter. Vellani's power is nothing compared to the glorious warlord Yashahone. Once we have you on Sata, you are safe. Jew nodded, then turned to look at Quentin. And what are the Krakens offering for a contract? Are you kidding me? Quentin said. There's a price on your head. Everyone in the Ace is looking for you. If Vellani finds you, you're a dead man, and you're negotiating? Jew shrugged. Business is business. I'm a rare commodity. If you have an offer, then make it. If not, I can live with three years max salary. We can match that, Quentin said quickly, having no idea if the Krakens could, nor having any idea what constituted league maximum. He lies, Malia screamed from above. He is not authorized to sign a deal, Jew, and time is ticking away. Bellani is closing the noose. Barnes can't make that deal, nor can any of his teammates. Ask him. Jew looked from Malia to Quentin. The look on Jew's face was a mixture of calmness and greed. He felt safe now. His worst-case scenario was a trip to Tier 1 and a big paycheck. His best case was a trip to Tier 1 and an even bigger paycheck. Well, Jew said, you did bring a contract box, didn't you, Quentin? Quentin's hands clenched into fists. He hadn't thought another team could get here this fast. He should have checked the schedule, seen who had an off week, who was in the area. There was nothing he could do now unless he wanted to start a brawl, and a brawl might land all of them in jail. He had lost. <sighs> you know what, Jew? John said. I don't think it matters if he brought a contract box or not. And why is that, big brother? Because your only chance to walk out of here is with the last team left standing. Quentin started to say, John, no, but it was already too late. The bulky linebacker turned and shot toward the cloud killer players, crossing the restaurant with the kind of blazing speed only professional athletes possess. Quentin saw Shiki Kill's black eyes widen just before Tweedy slammed into him, driving him back, using him as a shield to crash through the other Cloud Killer players. <laughs> Mumo Killowee must have started running a split second after John, because the young key followed John in, 
compressing and extending in a powerful straight-line shot that took one of the heavy Gs right off his feet. Shoto Thicket dove into the fray, as did Rebecca Montaigne. The diner started to disintegrate. Tables and chairs shattered. Counters cracked, dishes flew, and food sprayed in every direction. You no fight here! Chucky Chong screamed. You go now! Jesper Schultz rushed at Quentin. Quentin sidestepped the big heavy G swing, then brought his own fist around in an overhand right that caught Schultz on the left cheek. Pain shot through Quentin's hand. It seemed to hurt him more than the heavy G, who turned and swung a backhand left that caught Quentin in the mouth and threw him backward. He crashed through a table and landed on his back amidst broken wood and plastic, looking up at a pair of Sklorno dressed in all black. Quentin Barnes eats dinner with us! The one on the left screamed. The one on the right simply sagged in her seat, shaking in rapture. Great. He'd been recognized. A massive hand grabbed his foot and yanked him out from the wreckage. Now he found himself looking straight up at the heavy G. No red jersey for you here, you pansy quarterback, the enormous Schultz said as he cranked his fist back to deliver a crushing blow. A blow he never landed because Rebecca Montaigne dove in at top speed and put her shoulder into Jesper Schultz's exposed ribs. Quentin heard a crack and a deep cry of pain from the man. Schultz stumbled and sagged. Rebecca landed on top of him, then started kneeing him in the face. Quentin saw that Jew Tweedy was just standing there, smiling, watching it all go down. Bad Jew is in there! He's right in there! That voice came from outside the diner, and Quentin recognized it. Jake Bible. Quentin looked past the brawl out the door. He didn't need to recognize individual sentients to know gangster enforcers when he saw them. Two humans, a heavy G, and three quith warriors, all dressed in expensive clothes, rushing across the street toward the diner and all holding something in their hands. Jake Bible had sold them out to Volani's goons. Krakens! Quentin screamed. Back door now! Don't you dare! The flapping Kretorakian said. The great warlord Yashahone will... The bat didn't finish his sentence because Chucky Chong flew into him and knocked him through the restaurant's front window. Glass shattered and scattered. Chucky turned and screamed at the Kraken's players, his voice now fuzzy and distorted. You follow me! Follow me now! Chucky shot through the swinging door that led to the kitchen. The Krakens responded instantly, running or limping away from the fight, following the flying Chucky Chong. Along the way, Quentin grabbed Jew's thick arm. You ready to be a Kraken now, Jew? Jew saw the gangsters rushing in, then looked at Quentin and nodded quickly. Turns out you know how to negotiate after all. Fine, then come on! Quentin followed his teammates, who were following Chucky Chong. He heard gunshots, felt a bullet whiz past his head as he ducked through a door and into the kitchen. You have been listening to The Starter, Season 3 of the Galactic Football League Series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon. Superweaponband.com
Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.